Greetings programs, and welcome back to another episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast, the podcast where we discover, discover, discuss two <laughs> new things every week. Uh, my name is Matthew, and I'm your host, and with me as always is Simon, my co-host. How are you, hello. Simon? Hello, hello. I definitely discover things uh, every week, because you make me watch stuff that I never would have watched, and I usually enjoy all of it. I enjoy the experience of it, that's for sure. I've, de- <laughs> I've, definitely, I've definitely watched things... And one of the first things you made me watch that I was not going to watch for ages was um, Moneyball. I feel like this whole thing started with Moneyball because at that time I knew even less about baseball than I do now. And um, I'm not really into sport movies anyway. And uh, turns out Moneyball is a fantastic movie. And I never would have watched that. And, you know, we have a list. We have this ongoing thing where Matt has his uh, I told you so list. And uh, occasionally, occasionally when I'm bored or I have like those, those rare fleeting moments where I actually have time to watch something I want to watch, I choose something off the list, I watch it, and then I text him saying, why didn't you tell me this is so good? <laughs> usually, usually there's only been one thing, I can't remember what it was now, but one thing on the list that I didn't like, and everything else has been like 10 out of 10. And What was the, the other, one thing? I don't remember what the uh, one thing was either. And it, it was... It stood out because usually you're right about everything on the list. And this one thing, I, it didn't click with me at all. I can't remember what it is now. But I, I tried watching Master and Commander this week, which I feel like has been the number one in that list for years. Like, how long have I known you? I think it's been there at the top of the list for about a decade. I've never seen Master and Commander, but I, I've recently watched some boat-related combat movies and really enjoyed them. So I was like, oh, maybe it's time to watch Master and Commander. Turns out it's nowhere to stream. It's absolutely nowhere at all. So um, I lost my window, uh, but I will. I will watch it. Uh, it's. You mean you could, if it, if you want to talk about Master and Commander, <laughs> um, I will. I will buy you Master and Commander. <laughs> <laughs> If that's it's, what it takes <laughs> to get you to watch Master and Commander, I've, I will get it re- for you. I've got a really horrible feeling that I'm going to watch Master and Commander, and it's going to go straight to my like top three all time. Why the hell didn't you watch this like a decade ago? Kind of movies. I feel. I feel like it might be. It seems to be one of these movies that inspires people to great like passion. Even like there's a great video going around of. Um, someone's celebrating at a sports event but someone has changed the sporting event to the opening title card of master and commander where it's something like it was a period of war <laughs> war is on the sea and you i'm sure you know the exact quote but like it, there's now war is on the ocean and and everyone in the stadium like goes crazy is like hugging each other and i i feel like people love this movie and with good reason i'm sure i mean you know What's why people love this movie uh, it's because it's a great, great, <laughs> great movie. Uh, and the quote is April 1805. <laughs> Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. Oh my God. It's pretty evocative, isn't it? It's yeah. Evocative. And then the next scene, the next shot is of the HMS surprise on the ocean and like the text of Captain Aubrey's orders, which I think say something like, um, Intercept French privateer, the Acheron, en route to Pacific, intent on carrying the war into those waters. Sink, mm. burn, or take her a prize. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there is a lot, I, 
I've never really made the equation between Star Trek and naval battles, but there's a lot. It's very similar, isn't it? Like Star Star Wars battles are not naval battles. Star Wars battles are World War Two Spitfire battles. So you have gravity in space, but it's Star yeah. Trek battles feel a bit more navally, like properly navally. I mean, not for Star nothing, Wars. but the 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 best submarine battle movie you'll ever watch is actually The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> that's, that's literally what it is. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the best one is probably something like Das Boot, but das Boot. bear oh with me God. here. Like, it, it, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is is the best uh, submarine battle movie you probably have ever seen. So I distinctly remember watching, like, watching Das Boot at exactly the right age, because I was really, really young. I was probably about 14, and I watched this incredible movie. If you haven't seen Das Boot, it's about a German U-boat uh, submarine in Second World War, and it takes a critical hit. And it basically, the middle part of this movie is that it sinks to the bottom of it, its section of ocean, and people are about to die. And then the whole crew spends about an hour and a half like MacGyvering this submarine into something that can enable them to resurface. And um, I wrote, like, this this idea, this story of everyone shipping together and fixing the engine so they can live, I stole that wholesale for a book I wrote as well. Mm-hmm. But I remember I watched the end of, uh, the end of Dust Boot with the, the great actor... Uh, Jordan Jurgen uh, Jurgen Prognau, right? Who is brilliant, and it comes up. And I'm going to spoil the end of this movie, but you you get they they survive. They come to the surface. They come to the dock, and then there's a, a plane attack, and they all die. And, and they all die <laughs> just like that. And I remember thinking, what a stupid ending! It's like all that all that like effort was for nothing. Oh, <laughs> and suddenly I understood movies. And uh, yep. it was a really important film for me. Great film. Great film. You know, it's been forever since I actually watched that movie. Uh, mm. So long that like, because there was a, a, I think a BBC or S- it aired on CBC here in Canada, but a BBC miniseries of it recently too. And I oh, was really? like, oh, yeah. I should watch, I should watch that. And then I just never I didn't know that. did. Mm-hmm. Um, supposed to be pretty good though. Yes. Um, we'll check that out. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, so anyway, that's the it's kind of, it, the movie that was sort of had that like narrative awakening for me was actually Bridge on the River Kwai. So oh, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're like, oh, like all God, that work, yeah. and then he blew up. To, oh, oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, movies now more than ever um, are great. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, that's, that's, that's a decent amount of banter, who's, I think, but like what, sorry, go on, go on. Well, I, I was thinking about Bridge on the River Choir and who, who would you say, who's the director these days that is making David Lean style, like widescreen epic, uh, location, like personal dramas. Who's Denny Villeneuve. Oh, that's a great call. That is, is a great he, call. And like, if you, the end, I would say that like, you could make an argument that Ryan Johnson made one with The Last Jedi. Um, But really the only person who's making the big sprawling epics, like anything close to like that. And I'm not even just talking about Dune, but also like Arrival and all of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. that he's done. Uh, Sicario. Um, Mm. He's really the only one that's doing... Blade Runner 2049, big, sprawling, epic story. 
um, is as close as I can think. It's a great call. Because um, I think who else could even who else would even be in the running for that right now? Uh, um, um, I can't. Like Spielberg has had his moments of anything Spielberg shoots is great. So when he shoots big, wide open spaces, they always look the same kind of classic epic feel. But as a whole movie, to have that classic epic. Like old fashioned feel. I think Villeneuve's a well, good and, and Spielberg has been, and, you know, is the greatest living film director. But mm-hmm. lately, West Side Story is kind of an, an exception in his filmography because the, the stuff he's been doing lately is stuff like Bridge of Spies and Lincoln and The Post, which mm-hmm. are excellent movies and completely underrated, which is a weird thing to say, but. I have all these thoughts about these movies, but anyway, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, they're much more, they're much smaller. They're much more personally focused. Some of them involve like, you know, global geopolitics or American, you know, the state of American politics, but the stakes mm-hmm. within the movie are often quite a little more contained. Mm-hmm. They're not big sprawling things. Like the post takes mm-hmm. place in like three buildings. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I maintain mm-hmm. that if, if anyone else had directed, any of those three movies, we would have hailed them as like the next great director of our yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But Spielberg is the guy who, like, you know, he knocks out a masterpiece every other film, and we're like, ah, oh, it's just Spielberg. Yes, yeah. just, just doing his thing. Yeah, it's terrible. Sure. It's absolutely terrible. I don't, I don't know any other director who could make me get emotional and tear up just by having one character put a bunch of newspapers on the table, which is exactly what happens at the end of the post. Uh, I thought you were going to talk about the end of um, Saving Private Ryan as well, which is a pretty devastating final shot. Well, Saving Private Ryan, though, would fit into that more epic style of movie that he used to make. He still could make, but like lately he's been doing these sort of more contained stories. So, anyway. I'd be very interested to see what shape Indiana Jones 5? Five, yeah. Five is, like Mangold's a great director, but he like Spielberg, Spielberg, and so much of indie is Spielberg's eye, and I will be very interested to see how that translates to a different director. Yeah. Oh well. Well, there's only time yeah. will tell. Yes. So what are we talking about? Let's let's try. <laughs> We've yeah, both okay. tried to get back on track. Um, <laughs> what you can tell we haven't talked for a few days, can't you? Um, what yeah. are we talking about this week? Uh, so this week we have two new things, one movie and one television show, both of which are uh, now available, depending where you live. Uh, the first we're going to talk about is a lovely film from A24 and in Canada Elevation Pictures called Marcel, The Shell with Shoes On. And I think I'm going to ask you, Simon, to take us through the basics of what is Marcel, The Shell uh, with Shoes On, other wow. than, spoiler alert, a wonderful movie. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say now. Um, the the clues in the title: Marcel is literally a a one inch tall shell who lives with his grandmother Connie, and uh, he has a pet ball of lint called Adam Allen. And so you can tell from that, like that whimsical beginning, that the whole movie is this light, full of whimsy kind of approach to the subject with. Uh, some things that it, it, it wants to teach you feelings and boy does it teach you feelings he, he um, 
the whole concept of the movie is that there's a dude called Dean who decides to make a really low-key documentary about Marcel, this little shell, and it, it's beautifully designed. Apparently, he's, he's based on a children's book, and I've not heard of it at all, but it's a it's a beautiful curved shell with one eyeball and two little feet. And a, and a I'm going to interrupt you there because I think it might actually be the other way around. The as I understand it, the original inception of Marcel the Shell was between Jenny Slate and Dean Fleischer Kemp and another person called Elizabeth Holm. And they created a couple of short films and then later made a children's book based on it. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I, I believe. I might have that backwards, but I believe that's right, the right, case. Right. But it's um, it's shot, it's all documentary footage of, what, 90% of it, of this guy Dean uh, just making short, like daily documentaries of Marcel talking to camera, talking about his life with his grandmother, talking about the rest of his family who tried to hide in a sock drawer, and then through um, through the couple splitting up, they got separated. And um, it is, uh, it sounds like it shouldn't work, but it it works so well because you've got uh, it's not animated. You've got the real environments, but Marcel is stop frame animation within those environments. And the way he is animated is so, uh, it's so full of character. Like the, the, uh, whatever the animation studio was that did this really knocked it out of the park because it looks completely real. There's no forced like frame rates, like they did in the Lego movie to, to show it was, pretend it was real things moving this is it looks like a real animal and dean um the the human contingent of this movie doesn't treat marcel like he's an alien just another cute animal and so there's it says some things about internet notoriety and what happens when you become vinyl uh, viral viral um but within this story as well it actually is a story about loss it's a story about death and how to deal with that. And the way it tells the story is just adorable, absolutely adorable. Um, I've got I've got feelings about appropriacy for certain age ranges, which I'll talk about later, but for uh, for the most part, it's it's done in such um I, I texted you about this. I'd love to know how they scripted this because it doesn't sound like a script being read out. It sounds like uh, the actors decided what they wanted their main points of the discussion to be, and they record it, and then they animate over the top of it. And however they did it, it just sounds so natural. Uh, they they have captured what sounds like completely improvised naturalistic speech, and make you believe that this it's this animated little snail talking to you. And, it, and he's not even he's not even a snail. He's just he's literally just a shell oh yeah, with sorry, a single eyeball a and a and a pair yeah, of kids. Yeah, and and so he becomes internet famous, and through that internet fame, he gets to achieve a very specific dream. And it's um, uh, it's interesting that it isn't saccharine. It's not a Disney movie. It, there are negative sides to the fame. There's there's moments of great sadness and emotion in the movie. So it is. It is the kind of thing. If you take your 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 kids to this, <laughs> you should know going in that it's going to bring up some very specific emotions in your kids. But it, by and large, it is an absolutely lovely film. By by the end of the film, and it does end on a positive. Um, by the end of the film, you've got that kind of warm, gooey feeling that 
that you really should have at the end of this kind of thing. It's really lovely. I mean, what did you think of it? I mean, I, I loved it. I loved it from beginning to end. Um, I think that you're right on the money when you say that it's, it's not saccharine. Um, it's, it's a very honest, um, portrayal of a number of different emotions and i think what makes it work i, I would say it's, it does it a disservice to say that dean the human character treats my marcel like a pet i think he treats him like kind of like a more like a child or like a teenager maybe mm. and that's about where marcel's at with his like development anyway mm-hmm. um and this is a film that will base basically teaches you that there's i mean <laughs> it's kind of a spoiler to tell you exactly what it teaches you, but it teaches you how to feel certain things and how to react to certain emotions. And there's one thing that there's a whole sequence where Marcel is living with his Nana Connie, who's the wonderful uh, Isabella Rossellini. She's so good in the voice role. And let me just say too, Jenny Slate as Marcel is amazing. I don't know where where her voice comes from. I saw her give an interview where she talked about how she does Marcel's voice, and she didn't really talk about the inspiration. She just talked about like where in her throat it just comes from. Um, but her she's so wonderful and heartfelt. And this there's a wonderful sequence in the middle where Nana Connie is injured, and he becomes really, really, really overprotective. And it's just like it's exactly the kind of thing that you that like. It's going to bring up some emotions if you take your kids, but you should probably take your kids to this movie. Not your infants, definitely not your infants, but the kids who are just at the point where they're starting to have to grapple with like real human emotions in the same way that like um, Inside Out teaches you that like sadness is key, you know, how to deal with sadness, how to integrate sadness and how it's not a negative thing to feel sad. Um, This one also teaches you how to grapple with and integrate certain emotions into your life in a really effective and heartfelt way that I don't know if you cried, but I definitely totally didn't cry through the end of this movie. Like, not at all. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I'm going to, I agree with you up to a point. I have an eight-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son. And I think it, the, the interesting thing about this movie is that it doesn't quite deal with grief like Inside Out does, which it Inside Out does big all of all of his emotions are are big and and are color coded and the emotion in marcel like it's hard to talk about this without spoiling anything it's a lot slower it's a little more it's a little more adult it's it's a little more young adult i i think it would be appropriate for my 11 year old son i think if my eight-year-old daughter had watched this I don't think she would have ever stopped crying because there is a moment well, where you where you re- hang on, there is a moment when you realize what's going on and it and it it's devastating and it, I I don't think it helps as well. I'm perhaps swayed that we have her her re- relevant relatives staying with us at the moment as well, and I think so. She's she's very much thinking about that. She's also very sensitive uh, in, in that. Um, she picks up on emotions very, very, uh, very strongly. So, what were you going to say? I just, I agree with you regarding the age thing. Uh, I wasn't yeah. trying to say like you shouldn't take. I should rephrase. I don't think you should take your children to it necessarily. I mean, your whatever parents are listening, like you can judge your parent, your kids' own emotional development, mm. however you want. But I would say that like this is a film for. 
kids who are actually around the age that the girl, the main character, Riley, in Inside Out was. So, like, 11, 12, mm-hmm. like, 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. like, not, not quite teenager, yeah. but no longer a child. You know, tween, yeah. or whatever they're called, you know? Yeah, it's kids who are learning, exactly learning to deal with these more adult uh, emotions, basically. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're sort of talking around it. You could probably get an idea of what, what emotions we're talking about, but it is a wonderful film and you should totally see it. Um, I think it might be one of the best things I've seen this year. I don't know. Oh, that's, yeah. is, that hyper, is that hyperbole? I don't probably, <clears throat> but I, what I've just, I, I mentioned this at the top as well. What really struck me is that it, it shouldn't work as well as it does. I mean, it's like, it's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment, which I know aggregate sites are, are not perfect indications of anything, but it's one of those movies that is so well done and so well done for a number of different ages and a number of different reasons. And it's so charming, even though if you look at the poster, you would think it's a childish kid movie, but it's really well, the, not. Uh, it's... The trailer hypes up how um, cute it is as well, which I don't think yeah. is a dis- I think is actually kind of a good thing kind of purposefully good thing in that i think it's really smart to sneak in the emotional stuff in a film like this Mm. um because it does sort of you know start really positive and end really positive and then there's some real like emotional depth in the middle right um so i i feel sorry for the the mum who is at the cinema is like oh it's got a five-year-old and eight-year-old and like oh look we're going to see this cute snail movie i like those ages are too young for the way grief is dealt with in this film and and there there are it's really good to learn about loss and grief but different ages learn about it in different ways and you got to be really careful about that and you're totally right about the 11 12, 12 year old this is exactly what someone my son's age would should watch but yeah i, think I mean i think younger, it's a it's a different ball game yeah, I would. I would argue that I think, I think it's totally up to every parent to judge their kid's emotional maturity as well. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely think, mm-hmm. I think your son is definitely old enough to see this now. But I think your, I think, and this is to be fair, this is just my impression of your kids. But I think your daughter will probably be ready to see it earlier than he would have been, if that makes sense. <laughs> In the same way that, like my my, I have two. My sister has two kids, and one of them is going to be ready for this before the other, for sure. You know, like mm-hmm. and it's just a matter of of where they're at with their own. Because every kid is unique, just mm-hmm. like every person is unique, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't matter because I'm a 41 year old man, and it made me cry. So, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful artistic film, and it's so full of just like, just it's so guileless, and innocent, and wonderful in the way it deals with everything and, and on the really one hand clever. it's really yeah clever. it's super clever on the one hand what sorry i was gonna say on the one hand it has this you know really sort of deep emotional section through the middle but on the other hand it has marcel recurring ask recurringly ask people like you've ever eaten a raspberry what's that like for you yeah it's pretty great but he I asked it like it, right? Something. Yeah, it's, it's just that he asked that question a number of times. Like, he is a kid, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And 
the way he states things is so matter of fact and guileless is the word i like the same way that kids can right like there's a a great moment toward the beginning where he's like well everyone knows that it takes about 20 shells to make a community and then like five seconds later he's like and it's just the two of us now you know it's like it's so it's so like wonderfully yeah like it's not it's not manipulative or anything it's just it's just a small a small person stating a fact in a way that's sort of utterly devastating (laughs) It is. It is because it's a child dealing with separation and then with grief. And it's very hard to watch a child deal with those kind of things. It's, it's not, it's not pleasant. And I think that a lot of the emotional core of this is not just how he deals with it when he's faced with it, which I thought was very real, but also how he moves on from it in a way that adults don't like it was very cleverly written and honestly the the resolution of this film where he finds light in the darkness if you will um is that's the moment that put a little thing in my throat it wasn't so so much that terrible 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 awful moment about 10 minutes earlier after the interview on tv which you know what i'm talking about which Uh is just gut wrenchingly awful because you know as an audience what is happening it 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 wasn't so much that point that got me it was just the as a child figuring out what it means and going forward with a positive sense of it which is such an important lesson isn't it but uh it's just a really beautiful ending and i really like how they found a positive way to end this very difficult movie to watch it's 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 weird saying Marcel's a difficult movie to watch because it is so well done and it's so light and funny and clever and frequently hilarious like one of his modes of transport is to get inside a tennis ball and just launch him around and bumping into things and uh and just little things like at one point the dog tries to chase him and he get out of the way it's it's just lovely it's just lovely but there are some it's some parts of this movie are difficult to watch yeah yeah and the way that marcel just i think we're sort of i'm just retreading stuff but like the way he speaks is so wonderful as well like when he's run away from the dog and the dog is like there's one moment where he's like (laughs) on a shelf and the dog is around the corner and like panting and marcel's like oh his face smells so bad (laughs) just Yeah, or the there's a moment I think it's in the trailer where Leslie Stahl, who they're huge fans of for some because it's hilarious, asks Marcel like how long he's been separated from his family, and he's like, "Well, you know, I don't know how long it's been exactly, but I know there's a big black space in my heart that grows wider and longer with every day." And then Leslie Stahl's like, "Dean, do you know?" He's like, two years." And then he's like, "Oh, two years. That's great to know." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, just... a great example of the whole script being that mix of Marcel seeing the world and Dean seeing the facts and yeah. how neither negates the other. Like Marcel doesn't feel upset that he knows it. It's like everything is extra good information for him. And yeah. it's a really kind of, it's a lesson in optimism, isn't it? His whole approach without it being naive. It's, it's really nice. It's a really lovely yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. 
So this uh, Marcel the shell, shell with shoes on is the latest release from A24 Pictures and Elevation Pictures here in uh, Canada. It's currently playing in limited release in both Vancouver and Toronto. So if you live in one of those two cities, please go see it. It expands to the rest of the country, I believe, on July the 15th. What are you going to give this one out of five, Simon? It's a four for me. A four, like a high four, like a like a low four. Like a... <laughs> Come on, we don't do we don't do variants of four. <laughs> we have numerical simplicity in this house. Um, that I mean, that is a, true. It's a like I think I'm a, a slightly harsher. Like a five for me has to be mind blowing and completely different and changes my entire attitude towards film as a medium. So a four, a four is pretty good. I mean, <laughs> as long as there's no pressure there. <laughs> like, damn. Uh, if, if 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 I genuinely loved a movie from beginning to end and thought it was lovely, like I did, it's a four. Like mm-hmm. there has to be for me a five is honestly, uh, it's a little deviation, but I can't believe that I watched the French Dispatch, and that is the easiest five like ever for me but we'll talk about that another time that movie i don't even like wes anderson as a director and that movie just blew me away so it blew me away so it's a five i really loved it so it's a four so this is a four movie interesting interesting i take it Uh, five it's five out of five for me it's a little different i need something to make me feel the feelings and feel them strongly (laughs) and this does that for sure um awesome it's also interesting um, that uh, what am I going to say? So A two four is a is a studio that's mostly known for. I mean, they're known for a lot of things, but a lot of people yeah, when you cool. say A twenty four, you end up thinking about horror movies. And mm-hmm. but this is lately, lately a lot of their films have been very focused on family, which I find. Mm-hmm. Um, Fun- yeah, they're really yeah. great. A two four are really really great at, at um, releasing producing good movies. Yeah, and they seem to know the ones that they purchase rather than produce. They seem to have a very discerning eye for Mm -hmm. making sure everything fits with the tone that they're going for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Marcel the Shell with shoes on. That's a solid recommendation, everybody. Go and see it wherever you can see it. Uh, Great voice yeah. Oh, yeah, everyone in it is great. Um. So let's move on, Hello. I guess. It's, it's yeah. very much like the next thing we're going to talk about, uh, except for that it's not. <laughs> um, so uh, the fourth season of Stranger Things, uh, colloquially known as Stranger Things 4, today is Sunday, so it was released two days ago when you're listening to this, and I have watched all of it, and Simon has watched none of it, so he is going to ask <laughs> no. me. So... Some context for this, because we talked about if we were going to do this. I haven't just watched none of season four. The Out of the entirety of Stranger Things as a thing, I have watched half of the first episode of season one. That is the beginning and the end of my knowledge of Stranger Things. And so I'm actually going to talk to you about it because I'm fascinated by the thing that I know nothing about. In a way that I wasn't interested about Game of Thrones or any of the multitude of other things that I have not caught up on. I mm-hmm. find Stranger Things as this cultural thing. And it's really interesting watching, like, going through TikTok when you don't know what the references are 
And as soon as the Stranger Things episode comes out, it's like, oh no, Dan, Dan did this one thing. That means he played this one bar on the guitar. That means he did this four seasons ago. It's really interesting to not be the Star Wars geek <laughs> for this one. You know what I mean? Uh, yep. So t- tell me, um, just on a general level, generally, now you've seen the end of season four and all of its movie length episodes. What is it about? Like, give me the, the pitch for Stranger Things. What's the, the pitch line for the entirety of the first full seasons of Stranger Things? Uh, the pitch line for the entirety of Stranger Things is that the creators of the show who are known as the Duffer Brothers, because they are brothers whose last name is Duffer. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, uh, Basically, uh, they they gave an interview at one point where they talked about the two Steves who raised them. And uh, what that is in reference to is that they grew up huge fans of Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. And if you watch Stranger Things, you know that it is basically a mashup of the sensibilities of Steven Spielberg and uh, Stephen King. It's uh, a horror movie starring a bunch. It's a horror show. It stars a bunch of plucky kids in the 80s who are going on adventures and and fighting monsters. And um, yeah, that's the pitch. It's it's a Stephen King, Steven Spielberg inspired 80s set horror monster show. Okay, and so before we get to talking about the fourth season in detail, do you feel like, uh, does it feel as you've gone through the first four seasons that this was a show with a plan and still has a plan? Or are we in a lost situation where they're just making it up as they go along? Like, what's the feeling with this show? Do you feel like they, uh, they have an end game that they have always been going towards? So I don't I don't know the actual answer to this question, um, but season one ended with a, 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 a bit of a cliffhanger, as I recall, but it felt effectively complete. Um, but with the caveat that, like, there's a major character that has a thing happening that only you know, right? Like, there's a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And season two deals with that character and everything that happened that without spoiling it for you who hasn't seen it season two again feels like a continuation of season one um but complete right um season three is a little different than the first two it has a much smaller focus there's also fewer episodes um uh and it's set like months and months later um and it's much more of a straightforward like monster horror show Mm-hmm. And it also ends in a way that feels complete, except for that there's a teaser for the next, the fourth season that's in the form of a post credits, um, which I'll come back to because I have lots of thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. The fourth season, because they we know they have a fourth, and they're they, I think they pretty much knew they must they must have just known they were getting a fifth. The fourth season ends in such a way that it is definitely a an end of a chapter, but there's a shit ton of stuff to resolve. So, oh, okay. like, it, it basically needs a fifth season at this point. Like, there's, it doesn't, call, to call it a cliffhanger would be, I guess, I guess it's accurate. I don't know. Basically, what happens at the end of the fourth season, without getting into too much spoilers, there's a major thing that happens that they can't not deal with. So, they need another season. And it feels like they planned for that. Um, 
So have they had a plan since day one? Eh, I don't, doesn't necessarily feel that way, but does it feel like they've ever not had a plan once the season starts? No, not at all. It feels like they, and season three, I think is the best example of that. I think they knew that like, we could tell the story in fewer episodes in a much more straightforward way. Um, I'm just sort of rambling at this point. It generally okay. feels like they have a plan. Yes. <laughs> well, that's good. That's that's good because I I know you've just rewatched all of Game of Thrones as well, and and you've told me the last seasons were kind of freewheeling towards nothing, and so it's good if you're so invested in a show. It's good that it actually feels like it's been designed and intended to go a certain way, to have a certain tone, and to tell a certain story. Yeah, and it's tough though. Like, there's lots to do with season with every season that I think is not great. I think that uh, I think very generally it's a very good show. I think a lot of people pour a lot of love into it. I think that it is from a production value standpoint, it is impeccable. From a production design standpoint, it's impeccable. I think all of the actors they get are amazing in their parts. Um, I also think that they. I don't want to say they've hit like a creative wall, but I think they've also maybe been trapped by their own success just a little bit in that there's a character in season four who's introduced in the first episode and dies in the, in the last episode. And that's, that's kind of a spoiler. If you watch the show, you'll be able to figure out who I'm talking about. But the, one of the point I'm trying to make is that like they did that last year too. And the year before. Oh, really? Like it, Introduced in the first episode and dies in the last? Yeah, so it feels oh. like the show is kind of afraid to take any kind of, like, big swing. You know, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't ever feel... And, like, even in season three... So, this is a spoiler for you, but no one else, because everybody else has watched yeah. it. But yeah, at the end of season three, one of the main characters, he's the, he's the sheriff of the town, the small American town they live in. He's also the adopted father of one of the main kid characters he sacrifices himself to save the day. And at the end of the episode, we, as we understand it, he's dead. And then there's a post credit scene that heavily implies that he's not. And I just feel like that's like, I think that this season four, and I know people are going to get upset with this when I say this, but I think season four might've been better if he had stayed dead. Because they bring him back in season four and his storyline lasts the entire season and it could have been one episode. Maybe two. Mm. You know? Um, it and it just, feel, they just it... didn't they just didn't have the, for lack of a better way to say it, they just didn't have the guts to leave him dead. And it kind of, it feels like that, like there's there's another character, a main character who at the end of, the, at the end of season four is in a coma. And I feel like the bolder direction would have been, and to be fair, they're never going to kill off a child. I don't think not a main child. I mean, I, I say that, but lots of kids have died on the show. I just don't think they're going to kill off a main character at this point. And I feel like it would have been more interesting if they had. Do you feel like the ratio of filler to killer is, is getting a bit more skewed towards the former as the, uh, the, the seasons roll on? Uh, that's a tough call. Season two felt like a lot of filler, as I recall. Season three being shorter and more to the point has almost no filler, really, um, and introduces one of the best characters in the whole show. 
Season four is, I think, a little bit overlong, but it's hard to call it filler. I would say that the problem with season four is more that they they made nine episodes, which range anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours in length. And I feel like if they'd stuck to a more consistent format, we, it might have been it might have allowed them to cut things down a little bit, or at least to tell the story in a slightly like I don't think the last the the last two episodes of season four, which are what just came out are four hours long 90 minutes and two and a half hours and they just didn't need to be that's just ridiculous like do do they earn that time i know you've mentioned they should have been cut down but like is it so again i don't elements that need that that extended like the breadth to tell that story more like what could they have cut out here so again i don't think they needed to cut anything out i think they needed to pick a structure and stick to it right like i think it should have been four one-hour episodes or three slightly overlong episodes maybe but it didn't need to be the last episode did not need to be two and a half hours long there's definitely spots to cut into it and it sounds like i'm trying to like complain about the show but i'm not i actually i do i really enjoy it i think it's a solid you know three out of five very generally speaking i think season three is the the strongest season personally um but i think they're at a point where all of their characters are so beloved, so beloved. You're the English teacher. Which is which of those is right? <laughs> um, you can have either of those. If you, okay. uh, we tend to use beloved for like someone you're romantically involved right. with. You can say beloved. Whatever you want. It's English. Just make it up. Everyone. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, well, in that case, uh, all the main characters are so beloved um, <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> That I just feel like they're—I feel like they're unwilling to take any major risks with any of the main characters, and in a show that everyone is meant to be in peril ostensibly all of the time, it, it makes it feel a little bit toothless. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, when the characters do have a high beloved officer, then uh, that's important. Yeah. The what's the um is is the all four seasons are they? so far is it about roughly the same thing or is it a bit of a doctor who situation where there's oh no 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 it's all this it's all the same thing a new a new big bad and a new level of hell and you like what is the thing that they're fighting what is the stranger thing and what is the strange thing that you, so you can have a stranger thing you need a strange thing to <laughs> so what are those two things so it's kind of it's kind of tough to explain in a soundbite, but effectively in the first season we learn there's a, one of the kid characters whose name is Eleven. Um, she is a like she's a superhero basically. She can read minds. She's telekinetic, mm-hmm. and more more critically, at some point she's the subject of these government experiments. And at some point, they have managed to breach the walls between our dimension and this sort of hellish alternate dimension called the Upside Down, that they refer to as the Upside Down. And the reason they call it that is that it is literally upside down from the real world. Like, if your house is standing, wherever your house is standing, then in the Upside Down, it's there too, just down is up and up is down. Right? Like, imagine it extrudes out from the bottom of your house, this Upside Down house. I've seen the Lego set, so I can picture that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's a... There's an evil entity that lives in the Upside Down that seems to control the entire place called the Mind Flayer. 
which is introduced in season uh it's introduced earlier but like it's really explored more in seasons two and three and it has several minion type monsters uh one and they're all referred to by dungeons and dragons names so there's the demogorgon is the main sort of flower faced uh one in the first season and then there's smaller versions of that and then in this fourth season they introduce a new sort of villain who's kind of like a general from the upside down like not we don't understand him to be like the mind flayer but he's like a top tier mm-hmm. bad guy from the upside down he's called and they refer to him as vecna who's a very famous like dungeons and dragons evil bad guy mm-hmm. but it's all from the like the upside down is the main thing uh and there's varying government responses to it there's a whole like russian the russians are trying to get their two element to it um mm-hmm. It's all, I mean, on paper, it's all very silly. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, it's, the, the monsters are scary. The monsters are pretty scary. And the Upside Down is really well conceived. And, yeah, every time they so, open a, a gate, it's bad news. So, is this one of the shows where each season, they're like, oh, we've just learned something new about the Upside Down. Like, we've got this extra thing to go do. We thought kind we of. solved it last season, and now we've got this whole new thing to do. It's yeah, basically like every season a door is open to the upside down, and every season that door is closed, and it's opened for different reasons, and we learn something more to, as to why, and then then it gets closed. So what's um what's the the element for you that brings you back to that makes you stick with what eight, how many hours how many episodes how many hours have you watched in the last week of this? Like it's, it's over. Well, bear in mind that so season four was split into two parts. So the first seven episodes okay. were over a month ago, and they were all an hour. I think the longest one is like an hour and twenty. It's only these last two that were like egregiously right, okay. long that came out this past Friday. Um, but what does? What, but what, like what at this point, things... like Sorry. like what does it do for me? I mean, it's a big yeah, nostalgia why... trip, right? Like it's yeah. it, we must be in that in that point of history where. These shows are set in the 80s, which is when you and I were kids, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a bit wishful thinking. Like, these kids are huge nerds, and they're making references that, like, you just know in real life they wouldn't be able to make. Like, a great example of this is that in the first season, the one of the main kids has a poster of John Carpenter's The Thing on his wall. And The Thing was not a successful movie in the 80s. Like, it didn't become mm-hmm. successful until home video was really, like, a big thing. Mm-hmm. And... So it's just it's just one of those things where like it's very much the Duffer Brothers ideal eighties, but there's monsters there. <laughs> I I generally find that kind of eighties like uh, roast into nostalgia with lots of references that really turns me off generally. Like, do do they find the balance? Are there oh, it finds a balance right away. Right. It's not even there's, there's not too there's not too many eighties references. No, I mean it. it Except in as much as that, like they are in the eighties, but right. it's not like they're saying, "Where's the beef?" Every five minutes, you know. <laughs> it's just it just set in the eighties, and it finds a really right. nice balance. To, again, the production design in particular is exquisite, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of that is how the eighties looks and how everyone dresses um, and how they speak. Um, but ultimately, it's it's a show about you know these kids who are best friends. It's about you know found found family in friendship you know um right and in the same way that like i guess the closest example even though it's not a movie that i totally like would be like 
the kids are very much like the Goonies or like the Losers Club. Right. From it, yeah, right? yeah. Um, yeah. They are best friends. They hang out together. Their parents never know where they are. Uh, and instead of being like just like hiding in a tree fort, they're fighting huge monsters. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and, and one of them happens to be telekinetic. Why is she so, telekinetic? Do, like, is that a, a reason uh, for that? Is that a thing? Or so in the first in the first season, there's a, a government lab in Hawkins, and mm-hmm. she's like the main subject. But through the course of the series, we realize we find out that there are several children with these special powers who have been at that lab over time. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just the main one that we know. And the reason she's called 11 is that she was never named. Mm-hmm. She just has a tattoo of the number 11 on her wrist. Right. Because no. she was the 11th child. Um, let's talk about season four then. Like how, what's the, uh, what's the kind of bottle concept of season four? Like what differentiates it from the other three seasons? What does it add? I mean, that's the main thing. It adds it adds a more relatable villain in Vecna. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the season four takes place eight months, I believe it is, after season three. The main plot with the kids who are still in Hawkins is that there's this new thing happening and they figure out pretty quickly that there's like a new villain they haven't faced before from the upside down. Several of the kids have moved to a different state and so there's a long-running story with them. And then this one character um, who, again, Hopper was, you know, died, air quotes, at the end of season three. And he's revealed to be alive in a Russian prison uh, in mm-hmm. season four. And, he get, and he's gotten there because at the end of season three, he dies to allow a gate to the upside down to be closed. And a machine explodes. And we all, it looks like he's caught in the explosion. But he actually, he managed to get through the gate. And then the Russians find him and they put him anyway. Hmm. The it's and it's a good show. Like it's a fun show. It's a very well realized show. I definitely think I I can't help but think about it in a more I don't want to say negative way, but like since we only watched it yesterday, I'm definitely having a hard time not thinking about my perceived sort of flaws. Like characters who should have died or should have stayed dead or maybe shouldn't have died and just the structure of the show and it's not you know it's not totally fair to say they're not taking a big swing because it ends on such a big cliffhanger like on such a big thing happening but like that was the kind of thing that would happen if this was a film series this is also what would happen at the end of the second to last one you know it's it's nothing i it's a really good version of this kind of story, but it's also nothing I haven't seen before, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think that um, as the as it becomes more popular and you get more seasons, is it getting safer in the way it tells the story? Like, did it take more risks at the beginning when it was just a brand new show and there was no expectation for any of the characters to live? Uh, do, you, do you get the sense it's getting safer as it goes on? I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the right way to put it exactly. For me, it's more that like the characters are in no less danger now. Like from a uh, what am I trying to say? Ostensibly, the entire world is in more peril in season four than it was in seasons one, two, or three. But mm-hmm. it never really feels like any of the characters are in real danger of dying. Mm-hmm. 
And the one character that does end up feeling like they're in, in real danger of dying, spoiler alert, uh, doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it yet. Like these are, it's not huge spoilers and I don't think any of what I'm saying would be a total surprise. I think people would probably be pretty outraged if some, if the character I'm talking about did die. They are, to be clear, my favorite character in the show. But mm-hmm. I think it would have been more resonant if they had, you know. I think, I think that, is and the character, and there's a, again, there's a character they introduced this year who ends up dying, who I feel like would have been way more interesting if those spots had been reversed and the team had to, you mm-hmm. know, the the Scooby Gang had to deal with this yeah. new dynamic. I just don't. Do you, do you, they, I just don't. I just don't think they have the the guts to do that. You know. There's just too much plot armor for the main like gang now, I guess, that they have become the face of this show. They can't if they kill off one of this core group, they're gonna alienate a massive section of their fan base. Yeah, and that totally sucks. Right? Yeah. Like it, it totally sucks. I and not to say like I don't it's not to say I want a character to die, it's just that I feel like if they're no. gonna put characters in peril, those characters should actually be Absolutely. in peril. Absolutely, and this was a problem in Kenobi as well, where you know that Kenobi, Darth Vader, Leia, you know that they have to survive. There's no real peril, no matter what happens to them. Like in the final fight, I'm not going to talk long about Kenobi, but in the final fight, which is meant to be this like fight for the ages, and they both arrive on night planet 32, Like you know that they're both going to be fine after this. There's no actual stakes. So mm-hmm. um, that sounds a bit like what you're talking about with the main group here. There's no stakes. It doesn't feel like anyone's in actual any actual danger. Yeah, it's it's tough to make that call 100% when I know there's one more season coming and there's lots of choices they could make. I mm-hmm. just fear they're not going to make them. They're not going to make the harder mm-hmm. choices. And it, the season does do a thing. Again, it's very, otherwise it's very effectively written. Like the season... The season does end on a moment of like, yay, we won. And then, oh, no, wait, maybe we didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> huh. and, and it's, you know, it's effective with characters looking off into the distance at the new thing they're going to have to deal with. But mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's tough. And it's tough to talk mm-hmm. about it like this, too. Because just to be clear again, I like the show. You know, mm-hmm. I like the characters. I like the concept. I like the setting. Um, I think that as much as I think Hopper maybe should have stayed dead, I think that James Harbour is fantastic in the show. Um, I think Winona Ryder is fantastic in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's it's so I just I just wanted to take more choice more chances, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the kids are all like uniformly great as well. Like mm-hmm. Millie Bobby Brown deserves every moment of superstardom that she is gaining from this oh, show. Really? Oh, um, and I, I'm not as a huge fan of Finn Wolfhard, but there's no denying that like he's a good actor and he's playing his part well. And same with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? Gaten Matarazzo, I think, who plays Dustin. Um is sort of this like the, the nerdy one. And then there's uh, Caleb McLaughlin. Like they both do really well playing the versions of the eighties characters in a show about eighties kids 
you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like they, they fit pretty specific mm-hmm. roles in that sort of Goonies template. And mm-hmm. I think they work. I think they do really well. Um, I, I guess I just saw, I just want them to take more risks. That's <laughs> what it comes what, down to. What would be your, what would be your, um, do you think season five actually will be the last season? Do you think it's the, have they said it will be the last season? Or do you suspect that, is, that it will be? That is the, that is the word that season season five will be the final season. So what would you like to see happen in season five? Well, I want to see them win, but I would like there to be some, some more lasting consequence to their winning. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I just don't feel like they're going to get that. They haven't gotten that so far. Not in a not in a meaningful way. Um, mm-hmm. Like I say, there's, there's very, there's no one from like the core group who I feels like they're in any real danger. Right. Yeah. And I would like that to change. Yeah. And like, it's, it's a problem. Like, I guess you can raise the stakes by having people get hurt, but they, and they do do that. But again, mm-hmm. not in any real scary way. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I say, and the one time they do, it felt like they were going to take a risk. They backtracked it almost immediately. So it's it's i mean again it's tough i do i just want to be clear i like this show i'm just having i'm just having a hard time not feeling about these few things thinking about these few things that i feel might make it a more effective show but you weren't frustrated watching it this is all like in hindsight right oh for sure like i do think i do think this whole like russia digression was just a digression i think that could have been resolved like make it one episode and have it be done you know, don't mm-hmm. like stretch it out through the whole season. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was really my only real point of frustration with the show while I was watching it. And it, like, it's not a bad story. It just didn't need to be a season long arc, you know? Is it the kind of show that you recommend to others? Like people like me, would you recommend it purely based on the number of hours you'd have to trawl through now, like full seasons? Is it something that you recommend to other people? Honestly, it's it's a popular enough show that I don't really have to. You know, people are either going to watch it or they're not going to watch it. I mm-hmm. I think it's good. I think you should totally check it out. I think you, who has a bit of a hard time with horror stuff, <laughs> might <laughs> might bounce off Very parts specific. of it because yeah. because there are there are moments throughout the show where like the monsters the monsters are legitimately scary or gross or gross and scary. Yeah, um, and the monster, monsters are fine. I have no problem with monsters. Like I think the the monster in season three is one of my favorite TV show monsters, maybe of all time. What's uh, the name of that monster? <laughs> so it's a bit tough to explain, but in season three, so at the end of season two, there's a gate open to the upside down, and the mind flayer is like sending minions in or whatever. And at the end of the season, uh, Eleven closes the gate, but a piece of the mind flayer is left behind. In season three, that piece of the mind flayer starts assembling basically a kaiju body so that it can come and kill Eleven. But the way it does that is it starts with rats and eventually moves on to humans. It sort of like possesses the rats and then brings them all to a central location and then basically implodes them and then uses the like guts and viscera to make a new body. It's it's gross and amazing. That sounds incredible. It is. And by the time they have their big final fight, it's made up of like dozens of people and lots of other things. It's 
totally gross. It's it's actually kind of like John Carpenter's. It's very influenced yeah, by John yeah. Carpenter's thing. Um, yeah. But it's uh, I mean, yeah, it's a good show. I think you should probably watch it. Yeah, it's. I don't know that what I know of your viewing habits. I don't know that you would like it, but I think most mm-hmm. people do. I think it's a, mm-hmm. it hits the right buttons, the nostalgia buttons, um, in the right order. That it's generally speaking, again, it's a good show. It's a very solid show. Mm-hmm. Season four for me is a pretty solid three out of five, and generally speaking, I think that's pretty re- representative of the show. I think. You know, first season is a four, and the second season is a three, and the third season is a four, and the third fourth season is a three. That's fair enough. And and who's your um, standout single member of the cast? I think you mentioned your favorite character, but who's the who's the actor that's really like surprised you in this whole thing that you think is the best? Is it it's hard. Bobby Brown? No, it's hard to pick one. Um, but for me, it would either be. In, in this season, I think that Sadie Sink is probably the, the standout in terms of acting among the kids. Sadie Sink, you'll remember, she was in the second of the oh, yeah. Fear Street movies last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she's probably the standout. She's also, Max Mayfield is probably my favorite character in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, David Harbour is going to be the standout all the time. He was already great. Mm-hmm. But he's mm-hmm. the he's the standout from the show. If, if you're not talking about Millie Bobby Brown, he's like the the main breakout mm-hmm. guy, right? Hey, did you ever watch his Hellboy? Yes, I did. That's another discussion, I'm sure. Nah, you don't. We don't need to talk about it. No, it's fine. I, hear, I, I don't hear good things. Yeah, he is a great actor, David Harbour. He is good. I mean, the cast is the the reputation of the cast in this is just phenomenal. Like it. it yeah, and and. And the show is made, and you can tell from every frame of watching it, the show is made with a high degree of love and care. Like, it is mm-hmm. well worth watching, and you totally should. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you specifically okay. like it, Simon? I have no idea. But I think generally people people should definitely give it a try. <laughs> right, but who knows if I'd like it. No, that's a good point. Well, maybe I will. What has, it, has, it has just enough of the kind of nostalgia that you bounce off and just enough of the kind of yeah, horror that you bounce off of that I worry about yeah. you specifically. Um, but I think everyone nostalgia. should try it. Yeah. Cool, cool. Okay. Well, well, perfect. What are we coming up for the next week? Well, um, we are two weeks away from our one-year anniversary since relaunching Woo! this podcast. So in celebration, I think uh, I think we're taking next week off, I think, for reasons. And then we'll be back um, in two weeks' time with hopefully, if all goes to plan, um, we'll be talking about Ms. Marvel, we'll be talking about Thor, Love and Thunder, and we'll be talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, as a whole. Uh, that's right, we're going to do a Marvel extravaganza for our one-year anniversary. So look forward to that in two weeks time and next week we're going to take uh um well we're mostly taking a rest because we want to not because we need to but we are taking a rest <laughs> we may need to i did uh, to gather gather ourselves for the marvel extravaganza the week after indeed indeed good mm-hmm. um well with that i think we're going to sign off we're just about just over an hour so i'm gonna sign us off simon do you have anything else you want to say to the to the people no, thank you for listening. Um, I, I'm getting some gaming thoughts together, so check the site for a new gaming podcast hopefully, hopefully soon. I've started playing a few 
bits and bobs, and there's one particular Switch game which is uh, I can't actually decide if it's even a game. So that so you can be sure I'll have something to say about that. Um, so that Good. might be coming up. But thank you for listening. Yeah, well, good. Well, again, I uh, couldn't say it better myself. Thank you so much for listening. If you have liked what you have heard, please consider giving us a five-star review, a like, or a subscription on your podcasting platform of choice. We are available on all of them, pretty much, uh, whether you're listening to Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Google, Amazon. We're on all the ones. Uh, check the website for a listing. If you'd like to support us in a little more direct way, we do have a uh, Patreon, you can find that linked in the show notes, but it is patreon.com slash MC Simpson. Um, that's McSimpson. Yes, I know. That's just my initials. And uh, yeah, um, please do that. We would greatly appreciate you. But we do appreciate each and every one of you who do take the time to listen. Uh, thank you so much. We will see you in two weeks. Uh, oh, and I forgot to say that we, of course, record this on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish people. So, we will see you in two weeks. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening uh, and joining us on this awesome Friday. <laughs> <laughs>